WNYC Studios is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Science Friday is supported by Sunbasket. No matter your lifestyle, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy. With delicious meal plans like paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, and vegan with quick and easy recipes, you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. Go to sunbasket.com slash Friday today to get up to $60 off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. A bit later in the hour, we'll talk about the cherry blossom hunter, English ornithologist and naturalist Collingwood Ingram, who gave up studying birds to devote his life to cataloging and preserving rare flowering cherry varieties, subject of the new book, The Sakura Obsession. But first, how many of you are twins? That many. Well, are you tired of being compared to your sibling? Maybe your parents dressed you alike, or people keep asking you who was born first, right? But twins, you know, have been a boon to science. So many twins studies examining the differences in their life stories, their ills, their diseases, the ultimate comparison. And now two famous twins, astronauts, have lent their lives to science. Specifically, what happens to your body after extended periods in the weightless, higher radiation levels of space? We've been asking this question since the beginning of human spaceflight, and there's still a lot we, we don't know. Astronauts have to exercise frequently to fight bone demineralization and muscle atrophy, fluids shift in their bodies in microgravity, and some even have vision changes. But in 2015, NASA undertook a more ambitious project to study the physiological and genetic changes of an identical twin pair, and those twins were astronauts Mark and Scott Kelly. Mark stayed on Earth. Scott spent nearly a full year on the International Space Station, and that, in that time, they sent research teams samples of their blood, their urine. They took cognitive tests and put as much of their physiology under the microscope as possible to suss out what was going on in the space-born Scott cells that didn't happen to his brother. So there's stuff that you don't see um, that, uh, you know, the researchers at some point will uh, publish papers on, you know, for instance, how... You know, my DNA looked one way before flight and, and how he's compared before flight and then maybe how mine changed over time while I was here where his, you know, in a certain area stayed the same. That's Scott Kelly talking to us in 2015 early in the experiment. And, and now the data is in, published this week in the journal Science. And we're going to talk about the results, some of them surprising, with the leaders of two of the research teams on the NASA Twins study. Dr. Susan Bailey, professor of radiation, cancer biology, and oncology at Colorado State University. Welcome, Dr. Bailey. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you're welcome. And Dr. Christopher Mason, Associate Professor of Physiology and Biophysics at Weill Cornell Medical Center here in uh, New York. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Christopher, the study wrapped up. The data is in. It's a 90-page paper. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> can you sum it up? <laughs> what, 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 ha what happened to Scott that didn't happen to Mark first? 
Yeah, so it, it's a bit of a tome. There's a lot to read, but it is because we wanted to look at every molecule that we possibly could, and really every sort of physiological, molecular, genetic, really cognitive, even vasculature change. We wanted to map it all as best as we could. And we found that, you know, there's mostly good news because lots of things change, really thousands of genes change. There's many uh, alterations to your DNA, to your proteins, to your whole body. But most of it goes back to normal once you get back to Earth. And some of the things that, you know, did change include, you know, really alterations to some of the telomeres, which Dr. Bailey will tell you about. And then also we saw gene expression, how what goes on and off in terms of how your DNA is Trans, basically transcribed mm. and becomes active or deactivated. Some of those genes also changed and persisted. So uh, the early reports that said that the seven percent of the <laughs> DNA changed—that's not true, right? Uh, if seven percent of his DNA changed, he'd be definitely a different species. So he, he did not come back heavily <laughs> mutated, at least to be a different species. But but there were some some things that changed, uh, you know, fundamentally to his, basically how his DNA is packaged and and really uh, mapped out. And, and Dr. Bailey uh, studied that in the telomeres. Tell us what you found, Dr. Bailey. Yes, well, we were really interested in looking at telomeres or the ends of the chromosomes and and what they might tell us about aging and how um, that might be influenced by spaceflight. So we went into the study imagining that, in fact, all of the different stresses and exposures of spaceflight would really act to accelerate telomere loss. And so Scott's telomeres would be shorter than than that Scott's telomeres would be shorter than Mark's after the year in space. But in fact, what we found was pretty much the opposite. Um, during flight, Scott had many more long telomeres uh, than he did beforehand. And then when he came back to Earth, within 48 hours, the closest samples that we had, uh, his telomere length shortened dramatically. And so very rapid, rapid shift in, in telomere length. And then over the following months after the, um, he came got back, it, his t- average telomere length did stabilize, but he still had many more short telomeres than he did when he mm. started. So some really, you know, dramatic shifts in the the telomere length that we really don't quite understand, but it's, a, it's fascinating. Hey, do, do the longer telomeres mean Scott Kelly was healthier in space? <laughs> no, and I don't think it really is the fountain of youth either. Mm-hmm. Um, what exactly it is, I, I'm not real sure. I mean, he they do live, you know, pretty healthy lifestyles. Their, their diets are very defined. Um, they exercise a lot. Uh, they lose uh, body mass, so caloric restriction. Scott lost about 15 pounds while he was up there. So, you know, things that we mm. associate with healthy lifestyles here on Earth that influence telomere length. But even those things don't really make your telomeres longer. They just help you maintain telomere length. So we're still really um, scratching our heads on this one and, and imagining that it, it could be something like the radiation exposure, for example, or mm. chronic exposure could be triggering some kind of a response that that changes the cell populations themselves, and perhaps it's something like that. Our number, 844-724-8255, is if our listeners would like to get involved, and I'm sure they would. Uh, you can also tweet us uh, at SciFry. Um, uh, Christopher, the, the, there are things we know happen to astronauts, bone loss, I said mm-hmm. muscle atrophy, vision mm-hmm. changes for some. 
Um, did any of this seem to show up in Scott's gene expression? Yeah, very much so. So uh, we saw a lot of the things you would expect right out of the gate. So you, th- you can see bone loss, essentially all the genes that are activated for osteoblasts or things that are actually helping to maintain and create bone density were really ramped up. And then also in his urine, you could see the calcium sort of uh, disappearing. So you could see a struggle in his body to both build mu- bones and muscle and then also as it was sort of failing in a sense it was the being sort of degraded at the same time. So was it confused? The body was confused? Or it, it's a it, struggle. It's, it's, you know, it's a Sisyphean struggle. You're pushing a rock up the mountain and just trying to make it so you don't fall down the mountain, really. You have to keep building the bone density as it's being sort of degraded by the, the lack of use. And so we could see that, like, you're looking in his blood, we took, you know, blood samples, uh, dozens of points over, it was hundreds of samples at the end of the study, and we'd separate out the fractions of cells. So we'd look in the plasma of the blood, look in different kinds of immune cells, look at as much as we could from within the body, and it really serves as this molecular echo and a sort of a scan of what happens in the body and yeah very much so you know bone density uh, we saw really the, the building up of muscle and, and some of the atrophy at the same time but really was striking is also the immune system was ramped up we saw huh. the most one of some of the most significant changes were all in t-cell biology or you think of your immune cells that help scavenge through the bloodstream and also DNA damage DNA repair all of these genes were really ramped up and more especially in the last six months of the mission than the first half and so it's so there was a sort of a switch after six months yeah that very got mu- turned on it seems as if it was it wasn't like he just got up there and adapted and was okay. Right. Uh, I mean, by some measures he was, but in terms of how many genes are activated and really sort of responding to spaceflight, it's a continual adaptation. And so uh, astronauts who are not up there for six mo- longer months, yeah, they, they don't have the same sort of reaction. No, we've, I mean, some of the pathways we've seen and some of the genes that were activated have been observed in previous missions, but nothing to this degree and, and nothing at this scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Susan, you all, you uh, also looked at damage to the chromosomes themselves. It makes sense, right, with the higher radiation on the space oh, station? Yes, yes, it sure does. DNA and might, it, you know, might be. Yeah, and it also fit very nicely with um, the work that that Dr. Mason was just talking about with the DNA damage response. You know, they saw evidence of that in the gene expression, but we also saw it um, visually when we looked at chromosomes and how they rearranged. We know that those things are um, caused by radiation exposure. So we saw translocations, um, rearrangements between chromosomes, as well as inversions, uh, rearrangements within in a chromosome itself. And all of that was very, very consistent with um, space radiation exposure during flight mm-hmm. in Scott. So when, they, when, when Scott got back to Earth, did any of the damage get repaired? Any... The DNA, well, move, the DNA movement moved back. <laughs> well, it doesn't really move back, but you you do see, for example, you know, elevated frequencies of chromosome aberrations in flight of both mm-hmm. translocations and inversions. When he came back, the translocation frequency go went down, mm-hmm. and again, that's usually that's because you he loses those cells with translocations; they don't really survive, mm-hmm. um, so those cells drop out of the population. Uh, however, for the the story on inversions was a little different it they they did persist and were still elevated after flight so again just evidence of an ongoing kind of instability um, that continued even right. after he got back one quick question from the phones is from uh, Joe in Gainesville Florida before we go to the break hi Joe yes I'm curious uh, the samples they took from Scott urine blood etc they were kept up there until they could be returned to earth on a supply mission the, the stay on the station changed the samples once they were taken from Scott's body. 
Uh, so, good uh, question. We, uh, I'll jump in quick first, I suppose. The, we did take two kinds of samples, some that were frozen and using a centrifuge on the space station that matched the speed and the angle on Earth. So we had some frozen samples, and they were kept frozen all the whole way down. But we also did what was called an ambient return collection. So uh, Scott would draw blood uh, and basically pop it into the Soyuz capsule. It'd be dropped back into Kazakhstan, would be picked up, repatriated, brought back to Houston. That's a verb I've never used. All the study is <laughs> repatriated a sample. And then sorted cells. And we needed live cells for... Uh, some of the work that Dr. Bailey wanted to do and also a way to sort purified cells. We had, so we did uh, as much as best as we could to make sure we could get rid of any batch effects and we have two kinds of collection. Susan, any question before we have to go for the break? No, no, I'd just add to that that yes, our, our samples also came back to us um, ambient on the Soyuz and then jetted back to Johnson Space Center and, and we did our processing and analysis at, at, the, at Johnson Space Center. All within 38 hours they come back to Earth. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. Quickest just repatriation amazing. ever. <laughs> That's right. well, Yes, that's right. (laughs) Now you know why the paper was so long. (laughs) (laughs) We will take a break and uh, talk lots more with uh, Susan Bailey of uh, Colorado State University and Christopher Mason of uh, Wild Cornell uh, Medicine right here in New York. Our number, 844-724-8255. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about uh, what life in space, microgravity, radiation, confined spaces, and more does to your cells and even the DNA in your cells. The ultimate twins study, astronauts Scott and Mark Kelly. That study was published uh, this week in Science. My guests are Dr. Susan Bailey of Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Dr. Christopher Mason of Cornell Wild Cornell Medical Center here in New York City. Our number 844-724-8255. Um, getting back to the bottom line on all of this, let me repeat for listeners who are joining us now. Uh, Christopher, did, did uh, astronaut Kelly uh, have any long-lasting Scott, did he have any long-lasting effects from this? Do we know yet? So most of it reverted back to normal, as we uh, described a little bit before. Uh, but there were some things that, that did persist. And so the we looked at a lot of genes that changed, that, that adapt to environments as they do here on Earth. And in space, we saw you know thousands and thousands of genes change. And almost all of them went back to normal. But about 800 of them were still uh, looked as if he was still in space, even six months later. And uh, earlier this week, uh, we were talk- chatting with Scott a bit more. And he said, you know, he really felt like he was a little bit off, even out until eight or nine months after he got back to Earth. So I think there was a continual adaptation that took at least six months uh, for him to re- sort of revert back to normal, at least in terms of the gene expression data. And we, mm-hmm. and so we see, you know, about other things change really rapidly. So if you look, for example, in his blood, we saw uh, some measures increased 4,000% with when as soon as he landed that are with inflammation markers, but almost all those went back you know, away within a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same with the uh, telomeres, as we've heard from Dr. Bailey. Uh, uh, Susan, Dr. Bailey, what what do we need yes. to know more about before we allow people to go to, to you know, to Mars, where they're going to be in space a lot longer than a year, right? Yes, yes. Well, I, I certainly would like to know a lot more about why these changes and shifts in telomere length uh, dynamics are occurring. I think if we understood why they were happening, we could do, you know, do something, know what to do about it, or if there's any real concern there um, as astronauts spend longer and longer periods of time in space. I do think that it, it 
alerts us to the fact as well when they come back that they do have a lot more short telomeres, which can put them at increased risk of, of aging and some of the diseases that go along with aging, like cardiovascular disease and, and some cancers. Tell us tell so us think, why, why the telomeres are so interesting to you. What do they do? <laughs> what, what is... Oh, they're they're fascinating because they they are, what are just they? the end. They are the ends of our chromosomes, uh, and that really kind of like the end of a shoestring, perhaps that you could think of. That it protects the end from fraying, from damage, uh, and it short. They shorten as we get older because they shorten with cell division. But they also shorten with all kinds of stress and exposures to things like radiation, or at least that's what we think mm-hmm. on Earth. That's what we see. So they can be a very informative biomarker of how quickly or how well a person is aging, as well as um, if there are a lot of short telomeres can also be very indicative or associated with some of the diseases that we associate with aging, mm-hmm. like cardiovascular disease. Which do you think, I'll ask both of you, let me, let me get, begin with you, Chris, which was the, is the greater hazard, radiation or mm-hmm. microgravity and weightlessness? Well, I think we can see, yeah, evidence of both definitely um, in terms of what we know for human biology or what we looked at in mouse samples that have been sent as an analog into the space station. And from what we can tell, at least from the gene expression data, is like how much of, of your of your genome, of all the genes in your cells are adapting, uh, you know, we see a lot more response to radiation. But, but frankly, we know those networks of biology much better than we know, like, what is the uh, microgravity or reduced gravity response to cells? Uh, we, we do see both. But I think uh, the one that's still active and, and seems to be the most uh, active from what we can tell is uh, the, really the radiation because it propagates to all parts of cells. Mm-hmm. And it may even, you know, one of the things that happened after the mission is cognitive uh, sort of metrics were worse off six months later. That didn't get better. Uh, no, it? no. And, it, mm-hmm. and so that's another thing that's on the list of things that are not necessarily bad, but they're just not the direction that you'd want them to be. But they were you, permanent as far as they could test six months out. Six months out, out right? They, so. they couldn't, he couldn't think as quickly? or uh, By speed and accuracy, work from um, Bosner's group that really showed that he really, uh, for these 10 different cognitive tests, you know, solving puzzles and shape recognition, some quick math, oh. uh, he was not as good as he was when he's even in space. Susan, what's that going to mean for somebody who gets to Mars and has lost his cognitive, or at least some of his abilities? Well, that's not going to be very good now, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it is definitely a, a concern and, you know, something that we really need to, to figure out. But I would certainly agree that, you know, I think radiation exposure is by far the the greatest risk and cognitive decline has been associated with with radiation exposure particularly to space radiation so i think again you know radiation is really going to be the thing that we Mm. need to learn how to deal with and i think technology is going to have to be the thing that helps us there you know either get them there quicker or figure out um, some better shielding um, that they can take with them but i i think most of the health effects or the, the damaging things that we saw um, could be explained by radiation exposure. You know, you, Scott in his, in his book and in, in testimony talked about how difficult it was the first day, few mm. days, few weeks. Mm. I mean, he just couldn't walk, couldn't function. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go to another planet and you can't walk off the spaceship or get <laughs> off of it or function for a while. Yeah, I, I mean, he, his legs swelled up. He really felt like it, they turned into balloons, he said. He, you know, he felt mm-hmm. like he needed to go to the emergency room. Even just the simple weight of clothing uh, on his arm, since he hadn't felt it in a year, broke, his arms broke out into a rash. And 
so and we can actually see that in the blood the inflammation markers were sky high like i said sometimes several thousand percent higher than what they were before the mission or even during the mission so you know it's interesting some things change as soon as you get to space you can see cortisol levels will spike up because your body's thinking well i'm in space you know so it's surprising but then they'll they'll, they'll sort of settle mm-hmm. down and, and scott in general is cool as a cucumber but you know the yeah, yeah. i mean the, the body didn't react well to gravity do, do we know i mean the soviets have had their own cosmonauts in space i mean have they shared data with us? Uh, there, there mm-hmm. was a, a pair, uh, another Russian cosmonaut that uh, was up for a year, but we uh, not all of the data has been shared, or that, that much of it actually that we've seen and, and that I know exists. So that's still being negotiated. Hmm. I see they were still talking to them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I, I tried to call Putin last night, but he didn't pick up my call. Was... So to where do where do we go from here? I mean, what would you, Doctor? What would you recommend? I mean, well, that we do. Well, um, I'll ask, I'll ask, let me ask Susan first, yeah. and then Christopher, you can answer. Well, I think that, you know, there's certainly, the twin study represents by far the most comprehensive study that's ever been done on the response of the human body to spaceflight. And it, as such, it's really a landmark, and it sets the baseline for going forward. You know, we now know a lot more about the questions to ask. We know more about the health effects to keep to monitor when our astronauts come back. So I think in that sense, it, it's been a huge step forward um, and, and really does set the bar and, and will help us as we go mm-hmm. You know, into future studies and get additional astronauts. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we only have n equals one now, mm-hmm. right? Right. And mm-hmm. So it, I mean, it's, it's n of one, but over hundreds of time points. So we know a lot about yeah. how things changed over time. But but for sure, the the most important goal is to do things uh, with more greater numbers of samples. There's only 569 people that have ever left Earth and gone to 100 kilometers. So the sample size can't get that big yet. But we, you know, I think every uh, cosmonaut, astronaut, every commercial space flight that goes up, we now know what to look for, and I think it. You know, really, it, it, it's helpful for humanity to think more about what happens to other people well, of different ages and, and genders. Well, you know, the, the, the president has talked about going back to the moon. Yeah, 2024. Forget about Mars right. for now. I mean, the moon has even less gravity than Mars does. Yeah, one-sixth. And so <laughs> uh, so one good thing is all the swelling and pain of, gra- of returning to gravity. You know, even though spaceflight's hard, gravity is much harder on the body from everything that we've observed. But, you know, the moon is one-sixth and, and Mars is 36% of the gravity of Earth. So even and the radiation it, you know, exposure there? It is oh, high, yes. higher. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Much higher. Yeah, so to give because you, they're outside of the, the protection yeah. of the, the Earth. The, the Van soil, Allen Belt. <laughs> the Van Allen Belt's atmosphere, all those things that protect us here, you know, they don't have on the moon or certainly not at Mars. So on, you, you, Mars. you'd want to solve that problem before five years. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with that happy news, uh, well, let me let me wind up and say thank you very much, Dr. Susan Bailey, Professor of Radiation Cancer Biology and Oncology. Colorado State University in Fort Collins, and uh, Christopher Mason, Associate Professor of Physiology and Biophysics at uh, Weill Cornell uh, Medical Center here in New York. Thank you. Thank you both for taking Thank time you to be so much. today. Pleasure. As a sci-fi listener, you've been asked numerous times to put on your citizen science cap and do real research, meaningful stuff. And today you've got a chance to help solve a question about Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's, as you know, is a complicated disease. It can affect a person's brain and behavior in many different ways. There isn't one definition of the disease, but about 30% of people with Alzheimer's experience a decrease in blood flow to their brains caused by white blood cells clumping up 
in the vessels. And researchers at Cornell University have found that this blockage can happen in the tiniest blood vessels in the brain, of course, the capillaries. And they're trying to figure out why this happens and what are the effects. And to do that, they have to go through hundreds of thousands of images of hair-like capillaries, and that could take years for one scientist. That's why they're turning to the power of the crowd. They've created a game called Stall Catchers, and the aim is to go through one year's worth of data in a one-day megathon, as they call it. And here to tell us more are Chris Schaffer, who is part of that Cornell research team, associate professor of biomedical engineering there, and Pietro Michelucci, Michelucci, who's a project lead for Stall Catchers and director of the Human Computation Institute based out of Ithaca, New York. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. It's great to be here. So yes, let's, thanks. Uh, Chris, let's talk about your work is in mice. How much do you, uh, we know about why Alzheimer's affects the blood flow in the brain? So in uh, mice that have been genetically engineered to get Alzheimer's disease, uh, we found that this uh, roughly 30% decrease in brain blood flow that's associated with Alzheimer's uh, is caused by uh, a certain class of white blood cells that are adhered and stuck inside uh, individual capillary segments. When we gave a drug that interfered with the adhesion of those white blood cells, uh, those stalled capillaries started flowing again. Um, and after that happened, blood flow in the brain improved by about 30%, so kind of recovering the deficit that those Alzheimer's disease mice had relative to non-Alzheimer's disease mice. Do we, do we know why the white blood cells clump in the vessels of the Alzheimer's patients? So, uh, so again, again in, uh, in Alzheimer's disease mice, but... Uh, uh, our, our thinking is that that's due to uh, inflammation in the brain caused by the, the aggregates of this small peptide called amyloid beta, which is the thing that aggregates into the plaques that are the, the kind of classic pathological hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. So, so those aggregates of amyloid beta, one of the things they do is they just drive kind of mm -hmm. a general brain inflammation. And one of the things that happens in inflamed tissue is there's a, an increase in the number of proteins along the cells that line the blood vessel walls, the endothelial cells, there's an increase in, in proteins that white blood cells will stick to uh, when they see them. Gotcha. And when you have a cut or infection or something like that, those white blood cells crawl into the tissue and can, you know, do, you know, kill pathogens, help repair tissue, things like that. But it looks like in the case of, of Alzheimer's disease, it's a low level of inflammation. It's just causing these white blood cells to stick and block blood flow in, in individual capillary segments, and they don't seem to be doing mm -hmm. Something uh, good. I'm Ira Plato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Pietro, we, we have big, big supercomputers and we have neural nets and AI that can <laughs> analyze tons of data. Why are you turning to people for this project? What can they do better? Well, that's the million dollar question. Um, so, uh, you know, AI is doing amazing things today uh, and uh, in some part, that's due to advances in, in AI technology, but in large part, it's just due to having faster computers. And um, having even the fastest calculator doesn't make it more than a calculator. It's, it's, it's how it thinks. And humans still think in ways that AI cannot. Um, and uh, and so when I met Chris and we started talking about um, the, the kind of analysis that needed to be done on uh, his Alzheimer's data sets, um, you know, the first question was, well, have you tried using 
machine learning and 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 various forms of AI to do this. And and he, and he said, yeah, we we have. It's just not quite good enough. It's about eighty five percent accurate, and we need ninety nine. So people are just better at this, is what you're saying? Well, yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right. We we still have an edge on the machines, um, <laughs> and and one reason for that is is that most of the AI approaches today are based on pattern recognition, and that means the answer has to be in the pixels. It has to be in the picture you're looking at. And sometimes the picture isn't enough. It takes a real-world context to understand what's going yeah. on. That's something people can do. Okay, so if people are interested, our audience is interested, how do they sign up for this? Yeah, absolutely. So tomorrow is National Citizen Science Day, and we partnered with SciStarter to to put on a nationwide uh, event. Um, and and the, the featured citizen science project is Stallcatchers, uh, and it's called the Megathon. So you go to megathon.us, and you register there. And then uh, between the hours of 10.30 uh, and 1230 uh, tomorrow morning Pacific time, um, and I guess if you're on the East Coast, add three hours to that, uh, just tune in um, to our live stream and play the game during that time, and you will be analyzing data next to the scientists. You're not a subject in the experiment. You're, you're a scientist participating in the analysis. Well, well, this sounds like a very important experiment, and, and or I mean analysis. What if you're afraid of making a mistake and, you know, I'm just a person? Right. And, and, and so, you know, this is uh, when we developed the platform uh, uh, to to pull in information from the crowd. Um, this was one of our first concerns is, and, and there's a fair amount of skepticism in the scientific community about how much can you trust scientific analysis generated by members of the general public. And so we use this approach called wisdom of crowds. And that means that we'll show the same tiny capillary vessel to several different people. And then we'll combine their answers together in a sensible way. So when you get one wrong, then three other people are getting it right. And in the end, we validated the platform to ensure that we're meeting Cornell's stringent data quality requirements, no matter whether you make a mistake or not. All right, let me repeat how people can sign up. You can sign up for the Stallcatchers Megathon. It's happening this Saturday. You can see a list of citizen science projects. It's up on our website at sciencefriday.com uh, slash catchers. And how many people are we looking for? Well, we're aiming for 100,000 people. Okay, we're going to melt your server. <laughs> we, have, we have done that before with other. So, well, yep. That's a good thing, I think. So we'll get, Absolutely. We'll, we'll we get hope you, you will. We'll, we'll try to get you enough people. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Uh, Pietro Micolucci, who is a project lead for Stallcatchers and director of the Human Computation Institute based in Ithaca. And Chris Schaefer, associate professor of biomedical engineering at uh, Cornell University in Ithaca. And of course, you can go to our website at sciencefriday.com slash catchers where you can help real really you can help real scientists do you know an analysis of their data. We've had some great luck with this. Lots of people get involved. I'll give you that website again at sciencefriday.com slash catchers for a citizen science project of the month. We'll be right back after this break. We're going to talk about uh, the history of the cherry blossom. Oh, the cherry blossom trees in Japan. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. 
It's cherry blossom season across the country. The famous tidal basin in Washington, D.C., of course, which has already hit its peak. And here in New York, those pink and white clouds of flowers are, well, we're getting ready for them to just about pop here. And our famous blooms, they have an interesting and little-known backstory, too. Listen to this. Japan sent the first shipment of 2,000 cherry trees to the U.S. in 1909 as a sign of gratitude to America. But that shipment isn't what you see blooming today because it was infested with insects and the whole thing was incinerated. Now, a second shipment of saplings destined for New York that sank on the steamer en route. So it wasn't until a full three years later that the first Japanese cherry trees arrived in New York and Washington safe from insects and shipwrecks. And just that's just one of the many interesting tales in the Sakura Obsession, a book about the cultural history of cherry blossoms in Japan and around the world, and about a really in, uh, interesting character, English uh, ornithologist and naturalist Collingwood Cherry Ingram, who devoted his life to cataloging and preserving these blooms. And boy, did he have opinions about cherry varieties, but we'll get into that. I want to introduce uh, the author. Naoko Abe is a former journalist from Japan's Mainichi newspaper and the author of The Sakura Obsession, the incredible story of the plant hunter who saved Japan's cherry blossoms. We have an excerpt up on our website, and, and we have some interesting cherry photos for you at sciencefriday.com slash cherry. Naoko, welcome to Science Friday. Yeah. Hello. Thank you. Let me get the obvious question out of the way about, yep. are you related to the Prime Minister of Japan um, at all? No, no, no not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because no our relation. listeners are going to want to know that, but it's Abe's very common name in yeah, Japan. Yeah, pr pretty common, yes. Yeah. yes. All right. Let's start. Let's talk about Ingram. Uh, he didn't yep. start out as a cherry enthusiast, did he? he uh, you write that his first scientific endeavor was ornithology, studying yes. birds. Yes. What happened? What happened? Um, basically, he got fed up with birds. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, pretty simple. Well, yeah, um, he was a true naturalist, and so he was very much interested in nature. He grew up in the nature, and he, he never went to school. But um, it was the First World War that he went, um, which changed his views on life. So he saw lots of you know deaths, and um, he you know it really changed his his views on life. So when he came back from the war, well he didn't he didn't fight. He he went as a, as a compass adjuster, but but he saw lots of deaths and um, you know dark side of the human lives. And so um, so when he came back to to England from the war. He wanted something new. He wanted to start. He was having kind of a, a, a crisis, yeah. <laughs> midlife we, we, crisis. We have those, he was, yes, yes, midlife crisis. Yeah. So he wanted a new start. So he and also he was tired of of ornithology. He thought there were too many ornithologists, and so um, he bought a new house um, with his wife and four children to live in, mm -hmm. in Kent, big house. But he didn't have a garden, so he thought he, he, he bought massive amount of um, uh, massive acres of uh, land. But So he thought, oh, maybe this is my new, new um, you know, new area that I can, I can, I can build a new garden of dreams. So, so he thought um, he would become a, a plantsman instead of right. 
Yeah, one mythology. But he chose cherries? He chose cherries because there were two massive cherry trees which, uh, in the new house, which right. were kind of rarity back then. It was in 1919. Um, uh, they were not popular in, in, in Europe at all. So, um, Well, in, in Europe, the, Europe, people expected the cherry trees to produce cherries. And, yeah, these, exactly, and these exactly. did not produce cherries. No, right? they were ornamental Japanese cherries, which were very rare back then. People didn't care about cherries who didn't produce, right. which didn't produce <laughs> cherries. So anyway, that caught those two, two, two big tree, cherry trees caught his attention. Mm. And he thought, and, and then the, the following spring, they were smothered with pink blossoms, which were really beautiful. And he thought, this is a virgin territory that, you know, no one no one uh, explored before so maybe I can be a you know ec- an expert of cherry cherry blossom he was very passionate and a very passionate man and very ambitious so he thought he could be an expert so he starts collecting different varieties of cherry blossoms so within six years he had a massive cherry orchard in his garden he collected them and planted them in his garden and uh, created a beautiful and within six years, he was a, hmm. a cherry expert, sort of, and um, and he was a uh, he was a believer of diversity and variety. So he, it was very important for him to have as many varieties of cherry trees as possible, which he did collect. Right. right. Yeah. And did he go to Japan and study the cherry trees over there? Um, yeah, he went to Japan three times in all, and the third trip, which was 1926. Um, he dedicated that trip to collecting rare right. varieties of cherry blossoms because he he thought he he collected as many cherry varieties as possible based in in Kent in in England. So now he thought you know I need to go to Japan again right. you know for collecting rare varieties. But he so had very he, he had very strong opinions about which kinds of cherry varieties, didn't he? I mean, like the the Kanzen, for example, which he thought was obscene. Yes, exactly. He really had strong opinions about his cherry tree. He thought Kanzen was, um, it's a dark pink, very showy kind of blossoms. He thought it it was too showy and he called it like a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Um, He thought it was too blousy and he he preferred simple um, single petal cherries. You know, very, like mountain cherry proper or proper cherry tree. It'd be very pro- proper, very simple, simple, but you know, delicate and you right. know, quiet beauty. And um, so he disliked Kanzen, but he he loved many other varieties. Mm-hmm. And um, he thought yeah. so. Sort of thought of, of of cherry trees like people. He exactly. He yeah. Thought of them as they people. were like his children. Yeah. And he was talking to them, and he was really loving each variety. Each, you know, he was often asked by other people or by uh, mm-hmm. you know media to write about cherries and what, what, which varieties do you like best? And it's he, he, he would often say, um, it's like asking a mother, which child do you, right. you know, do you prefer? Right. Do you, is your your favorite? So it was difficult. Well, while he was in Japan, he was invited by business and government leaders to give a speech mm-hmm. about cherries, and he gave them a a warning, right? Yes, um, he had high hopes in his 1926 cherry hunting trip, but as soon as he got to Japan, he was deeply disappointed. 
because he found out that the uh, well the, th- at that time the, especially Tokyo and and Yokohama area Kanto area was recon- uh, re- trying to recover from the great Kanto earthquake which destroyed everything in that area and so all he saw was uh, huge western building concrete buildings and there was no nature mm. and so he was deeply he he doesn't like civilization <laughs> he he loves nature so and then at the same time he discovered that the japanese people no longer cared about che- um, cherry varieties which had which had been developed over the past um 2000 years wow. over 1000 years and so he was deeply disappointed because he didn't know that. Um, so, so he gave a warning say, to the top, <laughs> top leaders of government officials or politicians or royalty or business leaders. It was a really the cream of the of the establishment um, gathering, and he said, "You must treasure." the past, you must treasure the, all these beautiful cherry varieties, uh, which are in serious danger of extinction. In fact, quite a few of them had gone extinct by the time he went. Um, so he saw that as his mission then, to he, help save yeah. <laughs> the, he, variety, the he, cherry varieties in Japan. Exactly. He thought that the... Um, you know, he said, he said in, in his speech to the meeting that, you know, Unless you did something about this crisis, you would have lost permanently in 50 years. You've lost all the cherry varieties. You would have to go to America or Europe or to to the UK to find the varieties. Did they listen to him for this warning? Did they heed the warning? Um, I think I'm sure some some did the naturalists, <laughs> uh, but they they were business leaders, and then the, yeah. the country was focused on modernization, industrialization. And Familiar they, story. They were the leaders yeah. of the of that you know trend uh, movement. So, unfortunately, uh, he 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 gave a stark warning, but mm. I think it yeah. fell on deaf ears. So but it was he took it upon himself. He did. He did to save the, the extraordinary thing yeah. about him is that he decided to save and preserve them himself in his Kent garden. <laughs> is that right? Wow. And you write in the book about a transformation of Japan's cherry trees, the the planting of a single species, the Yoshino cherry, instead of a wide variety of species. And that's what we see in the Potomac. Uh, the, The Potomac cherry is the Yoshino. That's right, yeah. And And so you've now... What I'm, the word I'm going to use, vanilla eyes. <laughs> you've now yeah. you've taken one species and made it above everything else. And, so, and then people don't start looking at the other beautiful varieties. Of the yeah, plant. and what was happening in Japan was that um, Yoshino cherry was developed. Um, it, it's, it's kind of a, a young variety, which mm-hmm. was developed at the end of the 19th century compared to other varieties which had thousands of years. So you've overshadowed yeah, so all those traditional varieties. Yeah. What was happening was that the uh, the the new government, the Japanese new government, you know, who which was focused on westernization, industrial and modernizing the country, was looking for a new symbol, kind of new symbol of new Japan. And this cherry fitted that okay. Um, purpose because they were beautiful and they were they grew fast and they were 
inexpensive to propagate right. and easy to propagate. And Perfect. so very quickly, they attract the people's attention and, and, the, and the authorities' attention that it was very convenient to plant. And very quickly, the mass production system was set up. And so they were, this variety, single variety, was planted en masse in thousands. Every time Japan uh, um, won a major war, whether it was with China or with Russia, or the enthronement of a new emperor, Emperor Taisho and Emperor Showa, Hirohito, um, that this variety was planted mm. en masse, you know, like mm. 2,000, 3,000 wow. all over Japan. So, in essence, it took over the old varieties which had thrived over oh, centuries. That's too, bad. that's too bad. Yeah, so they were forgotten. That's People still loved the cherry blossoms, but the single variety. Yeah, that's why we see them in the Potomac. Amara yeah. Plato, this is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with uh, Naoka Abe about her book, The Sakura Obsession, The Incredible Story of the Plant Hunter Who Saved uh, Japan's uh, Cherry Blossoms. I want to ask you to read a passage uh, in the book because it was so fitting. It was before environmentalism became a mainstream idea. Ingram was talking about these issues, modernism, as you say, progress and so on, coming at the cost of the natural world. And you have a passage to read us that reflects his thinking on that. Could mm-hmm. you read that for us? Yeah. He said, progress, improvement, development, call it what you like, is rapidly reaching even the remotest corners of the globe. Wherever modern man comes into contact with nature, he leaves a disfiguring mark. As his members, um, as his numbers multiply, so the fundamental beauty of the universe decreases. The passing of beauty and romance from the world is, to me, a source of endless regret. When the Victoria Falls have been harnessed and Spitsbergen turned into a teeming coalfield, teeming coalfield, it will be time to think of another planet. Wow. That's what he said wow. over 90 years ago, which is very relevant yeah. to modern times. Like a prophet. There? Mm. He could see that happening. He says, if this is going to happen to my cherry blossoms, we're going to have one variety for everybody. Mm-hmm. And we don't care about all the other details. And this could happen to the rest of the environment around the world. Yeah. 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 Are you going to go out and see the cherry blossoms here? Have you In the States? In the States? Oh, yeah. Yesterday. Yeah, where, yeah, where were you? Yes, I went to Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Right. And I saw Collingwood Ingram's... Uh, creation this uh, this variety called okame it was in beautiful blossom um it, 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 it's his creation he hybrid is that right yeah he how did a, it get to brooklyn how did it get to brooklyn <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting to look into that yeah 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 that's yeah. a beautiful garden there yes and, and uh, quite a few of his um cherry trees in his kent garden came over here to you know, um, to the not Washington's National Arboretum. Right. Like whether it was uh, Taihaku, Great White Cherry, or Hokusai, it's, you know, named after the uh, uh, great um, wood printer, um, that, which was uh, the first cherry tree which attracted attention to become a cherry expert. So Hokusai and, um, yeah. So you, if you want to find them, you can see them all around the country. His cherry trees. In, in the States. In the States, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for this book. It's a wonderful book. I'm a, I'm a historian of science. I love to read 
these books, and you've done a, a wonderful job in there. We, we don't have enough time to get into all the details, but it was, right. yeah. it was very nice of you to come by and share it with us. Thank you. And Ayoko Abe is author of The Sakura Obsession, the incredible story of the planet, the plant hunter who saved Japan's cherry blossoms. A really interesting tale. You would have never, never thought, thought about this. And uh, as you go out and look at the blossoms blossoming, you can go to our website and see some of the cherry photos we have up there at sciencefriday.com slash cherry. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music, and if you missed any part of the program you'd like to hear it again, you can subscribe to our podcast. You have a speaker. You can ask it to uh, play Science Friday. It's uh, whenever you want to. Uh, every day now is Science Friday. And we go to our website. We have all kinds of educational materials. We have educational videos. A lot of you bet you don't even know how many videos we have up there on our website. Science-related, education-related. They're all up there for you to use in school or just just to surf through them and appreciate them. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York. Science Friday is supported by IBM. Technology is becoming more open, data more accessible, and the world more innovative. IBM is combining their industry expertise with the open source leadership of Red Hat to bring you more freedom, more security, more flexibility. Let's unlock the world's potential. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash redhat.